Thank you, Carmel. Thanks for coming and sharing with us. Operation Christmas Child is always an exciting time. It's a simple way that we can truly be Jesus' hands and feet and share it. So I hope that you will plug in and help pack a box and then come and help us to pack the semis up as all of those boxes come rolling in. Again, I want to extend another thank you to you guys for making Halloween such a great thing last week, the event. Um, it was just a wonderful opportunity for us to love on our community and be able to practically be the hands and feet of Jesus to them. So a huge thank you to you guys for doing that. My name is Brian Legg. I'm one of the pastors on our lead pastor team here. I'm so glad that you guys came this morning. We are uh, kicking off a new series today, and the series is called Doubters Anonymous. When I was telling them about it earlier with the band, we get together and pray before service, and one of the girls thought I said Daughters Anonymous, and I went, no, Doubters Anonymous. And so as we kick off this series this morning, I want to ask you a few questions, and I'm going to ask you just to kind of ponder these things. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand or, or answer them because then it wouldn't exactly be anonymous, right? But just think about these questions for a moment. Have you ever doubted God's goodness? I mean, how can a good God actually let bad things happen to good people? Have you ever questioned, does God really care about you? Will he really show up when you need him the most? Or what about questioning your own ability and worth in God's sight? Can he really use you? Do you have any value to God? Is God really who he says he is? Or is your faith in him just pointless? We're going to take some time over the next several weeks in this series to explore some of those questions and take a look at some of the doubts that a lot of us experience. Maybe you've experienced before. Maybe you're going through some of that right now. If not, you probably will one day. And we're going to try to ask some just honest and transparent questions and explore what God may want to say to us in the midst of that. See, I think one of the most damaging things I've seen that happens in the church is People encourage others to just have this completely blind faith where you're not allowed to ask questions, you're not allowed to have any doubts, you're not allowed to struggle with anything, you just have to take it for what it is at face value. You know, it, it says it in the Bible, I believe it, that's it. Well, I'm glad if you can have that kind of strong faith, but I think there's times that the reality is we have questions. We struggle with doubts, we struggle through hard things, we don't understand things all the time. And for me, I look at it and go, if God can't handle my doubts and my questions... Why am I following him? I mean, really, what's the point? If he can't handle me bringing that stuff to him, why do this? And see, I think in my heart of hearts that God wants us to bring our doubts and our questions to him. I think he uses those as opportunities to help us discover him in new ways, to understand him differently. He uses it to lead us to a stronger faith and a stronger belief. It's part of that growing as a disciple. And that's what I want us to do for the next few weeks. I want us to look specifically at that journey that we take, how we allow our doubts to lead us to new discoveries about Christ. And those new discoveries will allow us to strengthen our belief and our faith in him. But before I ask any of those questions that I just mentioned to you, and before we start exploring those things, I think today there's a foundational question that we need to ask, and this kind of frames the whole series. I think this is the key. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ died and was raised a new life three days later? Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you really? I mean, think about it for a minute, because that's hard to grasp in our finite brains, isn't it? We see life in this certain way. There's, there's birth, and then there's life that happens, and there's death. There's this definite beginning and this end, and we see death as the end of what we know of life here on earth. But is there life after death? Is there really resurrection? Was Christ raised from the dead do we have the hope that's promised through that? 
Resurrection's not a normal thing. But we're here this morning because of resurrection. I mean, sure, we come because we know Jesus loves us and we know that we see that in him going to the cross and dying for us and his blood being shed. But we're here because of the hope that we're given because he overcame death, because he overcame the grave, because he had victory over those things. And it gives us hope of life eternal with God, with our Heavenly Father. Do you really believe that? Do you understand what the resurrection means in your life? See, the Bible paints a pretty good picture of this. In fact, Paul does a really good job of asking the question, what if the resurrection's not real? What if it didn't really happen? In his letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 12, listen to what he says here. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we've said that God raised Christ from the grave, but that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Did you hear what Paul said there in verse 17? If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. It's meaningless. It's a big hoax. It's a scam. It means nothing if the resurrection didn't really happen. There's no point to anything we say we believe if Christ has not really been raised from the dead. But see, Paul goes on in chapter 15 to talk about the fact that Christ was raised from the dead. And because of that, we experience new life and we have this hope. And I like Paul's words, but honestly, I think Peter said it even better. And I'm going to use his words this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at the things he says in there. There's two keys that are foundational to our faith. New birth and a living hope. New birth, a, a new understanding, being born again, new spiritual life. It's that clean slate, the do-over in life. This is what God offers us, that we come to him and he makes things right and allows us to start fresh. And as we begin that, as we begin that relationship with him and we start to understand that, that's when we start to experience what that living hope looks like. Hope of something more to come. Hope of eternal life. Hope of eternity with God. Life after death. It gives a point to all the struggles and the trials that we face here in life. There's purpose. Something we can look forward to. Something we can rest in. And see, I don't think we stop and talk about this often or even think about it often. But our faith hinges on this one question we asked this morning. Did the resurrection really happen? Is it real? In fact, I put this in your outline, and I'm going to put it on the screen because I want you to think through this and see this. Our faith hinges on this question. This is the foundation of our belief in Christ. Do we believe in the resurrection, in the resurrection or do we not? If we truly believe that he's risen, then it demands our whole life. It changes everything. It changes how we see things. It changes how we live. It changes everything we do. But if he was not raised from the dead, it's all a big joke just a scam. Now my guess is some of you are sitting back going, okay, so why are we talking about this again? I mean, resurrection, we talk about this all, it's not even Easter. Why are we talking about resurrection, right? And I'd say here's why. 
Because if we don't understand this, what is our faith based on? If we don't understand this, how can we have hope? If we don't understand this, how can we truly understand God's love for us and the extent that he's gone to us and his ability to walk with us? I think so many people wrestle with doubts around this one issue that it cripples our faith. And so many times we fail to understand what that really means for us. And so my goal today is to help you to see what the resurrection means to us. And I want us to do that by looking through the eyes of one of Jesus' disciples. Now let me give you a hint here. The series this month is Doubters Anonymous. And we're going to look through the eyes of a disciple today. So who do you think we're going to talk about? Y'all are really quiet. Talk back to me. Who are we going to talk about? Thomas. Doubting Thomas. We all know him, right? He's known for that one thing, his doubts, his questions, his struggle. But see, I think... Thomas gets a bad rap. Because Thomas really wasn't all about his doubt. Thomas was a man of great faith. He was a man of committed belief. And I hope that as we walk through his story today, I'll be able to help you see that and see a little different perspective of who Thomas was. But before we jump into his story, there's one more piece of foundation that I want to lay this morning. And this is not just for this morning. This is for our whole series. I think it's critical that we understand this. And it's this simple truth that there are differing levels of belief. Or maybe another way we could say it, or or a way it would translate, is the idea that there are different kinds of believers. And in fact, I want to walk through three different kinds of believers this morning. And let me try to explain it this way. When when my kids were young, and they were a lot shorter at the time, so we're talking like maybe three, four, five years old, I used to take my kids, and I would pick them up, and I would hold them by like around their knees, or right underneath their knees, around their shins, And I would spread my legs out like this, and I would swing them upside down in between my legs and just swing them back and forth. And my girls loved it. They'd scream for joy. All the moms in here are cringing, going, oh, no, he didn't. But I would swing them between my legs three or four times, and then I would toss them up into the air, and I would catch them. And we had a blast. They loved it. Their mom hated it. Every time I would do it, she would turn and go in another room or get away or close her eyes, do something. She hated it. But my girls loved that, and it was a fun moment for us. And so I'd you know, throw them around, toss them in the air, catch them. Well, of course, I always did it either at church or outside because there's really high ceilings. You don't have to worry about slamming their head into the ceiling that way, you know? So I'm swinging them and catching them. And you know what happens when you're at church or outside around other people and you're doing this? Some other little kid sees you, and they go, I want to do that. You know, back then I was really stupid, and I made some really dumb decisions. But even then, even then, I was smart enough to know, ask the parents first. Now think about this. The parents just watched me do this to my own kids. They believe that I can do it. They've seen me do it. They have physical evidence. But I would turn to the parent and go, is it okay if I sling your kid in the air like that? And usually I got no. And if it was mom, I got the emphatic no, and I had that little eye stare that was like, If you want to cause brain damage in your kid, that's your problem, but not on my watch with my kid. You ever seen that? Please do not call DCF. No children were damaged in the creation of this story, I promise. It all worked out. But think about it. We have differing kinds of belief. They'd seen me do it. They knew I could do it with my girls, but they weren't about to let me do it with their kids. See, here's what's interesting, is I think if we went around the room this morning and I asked you, do you believe in God? Every single one of you would say yes. I mean, why would you be here if you didn't? Why would you even come to church and explore anything about God if you didn't believe in him at some level? 
But have you thought about what James says about our belief? James chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you say you have faith, for you believe there's one God. Good for you. I love James. He's sarcastic, just like I am. He kind of gets it in there at him. Good for you. You believe in God. Okay. But he says, even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. See, there are different kinds of belief. A lot of people believe in God. Even the demons believe in God, but that doesn't mean that they do anything with their belief. So the first group of believers I think we need to identify this morning could best be called casual believers. Casual believers. And I think if we're all honest, there's probably several of us in the room this morning who could fall into this category. You believe in God. You try to do nice things for others. You have pretty good morals and values. You do your best to raise your kids right, to, to raise them to be good, honest adults. You're mostly honest when it comes to your taxes or business dealings. Other people would look at you and go, you're a good person. You're a good guy. You're a good lady. You believe in God, but in reality, you're more like a practical atheist. Extreme term, huh? Let me explain. Maybe you'd say it this way. You believe in God, but practically speaking, you don't allow the teaching of Christ to impact the way you live your life daily. You're a casual believer. I believe in God. I believe in who he is, who he says he is. But you don't let that affect anything about what you do, what you say, how you live. You don't allow his teachings to change you. A casual believer. I think another type of believer that we need to understand this morning or identify is that of a convenient believer. Basically, if it helps me, then I'm a believer. If it's good for me, then I'm a believer. If being a Christian helps you to get that big sell, or if it helps you to earn brownie points with your boss because they happen to be a Christian, or if it gets you that date with that really cute Christian girl because you can pull your cross necklace out and hang it on your shirt, oh, now I'm a believer. If it's convenient, if it helps you out, then you're a believer. I read this past week about a study that was done several years ago, but the study said this, that 40% of people classified as the average American churchgoer didn't give a single dollar to their local church in the course of a year and didn't serve in any role in the course of their church, inside or outside. 40%. And this was like eight years ago this survey was done, so the numbers are probably even worse now. It's convenient belief. It's a consumerist mentality. A convenient believer says something like this, I'm here for what I get, can get, but my faith isn't going to cost me anything. I'm here to see what I can get out of it. It's, it's Walmart church, basically. It's, if they have what I want and it's at the right price and they have the items that I'm looking for, then I'm all about it. If not, I'm going to some other store to get stuff. It's coming to church on Sunday morning and going, well, if the worship's good, if the band sings well, you know, if they have a great kids program, if you give me free lunch every once in a while, yeah, I'm here. I'm committed. But if not, I'm sorry, I'm out of here. I'm going to find someplace else. It's the consumer mindset. It's convenient belief. So casual believers, convenient believers, and then there's a third category that I would describe as committed believers. And I really believe this is what Jesus calls all of us to be in some form. Committed in every way, all in, living our lives with the understanding that our primary purpose is to know him and to make him known. Our primary purpose is to know him and make him known. We're all in, giving up everything. When Jesus called his disciples, it wasn't a casual invitation. He called them to literally give everything up and come and follow him. 
to give up their business, to give up their dreams, to give up their family, and to come and follow him and to be like him. There was major cost involved. Look at what Jesus says, Matthew 16. He says to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross. Follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? These are Jesus' words to his followers. Give it all up. Trust that what I'm offering you is better than anything that you have, anything that you're dreaming of, anything that you want. Die to yourself and follow me. Committed believers choose following Christ as a lifestyle. It's not just something they do. It's who they are. It's a part of them. For committed believers, the heart cry becomes not my will, Lord, but your will. Not my dreams, your dreams. Not my wants and desires, your wants and desires. Just like Jesus prayed to his Father in Gethsemane before he went to the cross. Not my will, but yours. And here's where it becomes interesting, and this is why I want us to look at Thomas today. I think that our journey towards being a committed believer most often starts with our doubts and our questions. It starts with our doubts and our questions. And I want to show you this in Thomas's life this morning. Before we jump in, I want you to hear clearly, having doubts is not wrong. Having doubts is not sinful. It's, it's what we do with those doubts that matters. It's what we do with the doubts that gives us direction in life. And unfortunately, I've walked with a lot of people who have allowed their doubts to completely consume them. They've gotten so caught up in it and so overwhelmed by it that they can't see any other reality, and their doubts just take over their lives. And instead of going to God and allowing their, their doubts to be something that forces them towards Christ to ask questions and to walk through the struggle and to allow him to reveal new things to them, they just get swallowed up in it. Let's look at Thomas' journey and talk about how Jesus spoke to his doubts. Let me give you just a little bit of context about Thomas. In Thomas' day, he was a good Jew, and so, so good Jewish boys were raised that they learned the Scriptures. They memorized the Scripture. They went to school. They, they, were, they, uh, they knew this stuff. And the guys who were possibly going to be rabbis, they studied hard. I mean, these guys went through years and years of school and years of memorizing Scripture and, and gaining understanding. And rabbis would come through town, and the rabbi was really an esteemed person in the Jewish culture. He was the teacher. And he was constantly looking for new disciples, new recruits that he could bring in. But the rabbi was always looking for the best of the best. He was looking for those guys that not only had their high school diploma, but you know, they had gone on to college. They had some, some education under their belt. Maybe they even had a master's degree. They had really studied hard. They got it. They showed good leadership qualities. They, they had potential. And the rabbi would come through town, and he would find these guys that were the best of the best, and he would call them to come and be his disciples. And it was such a distinguishment and an honor to be called as a disciple because you knew when you went to be a disciple, you weren't just coming to learn from this rabbi, you were coming to be like the rabbi. You were coming to learn his ways, to learn everything about him so that one day you could be him. And so the rabbi's teaching and training and discipling and bringing you along and, and you know one day you're going to get to be distinguished like the rabbi is. And you're going to be known for your teaching and people are going to look up to you and you'll be esteemed. And then... There's Thomas. Thomas wasn't educated. Thomas didn't go that far in school. He didn't have all the background that a lot of the other Jewish boys had. Thomas was doing his best to make ends meet. He was working as a fisherman, had his business 
fishing, trying to bring stuff in, and, and he was just barely making ends meet, working hard, killing himself, trying to make it. And here comes Jesus, this different kind of rabbi. Jesus, who Thomas has heard about, that's doing all these miracles, he's healing people. He's this amazing rabbi coming through town. And Jesus comes to Thomas and he says, Thomas, come on. Come follow me. Come be my disciple. Come do what I do. Learn from me. Be like me. Put yourself in Thomas' shoes for a moment. Wow. Me? Just little old me, Thomas? You know, I, I don't know much, Jesus. I haven't learned much. I don't have much education. What, what am I going to do? How am I going to, you know, you're the most amazing rabbi walking around. There's all these people talking about you, the things you're doing. How am I going to come with you and follow you? What do you think Thomas responded? Of course. He said, yes. This is an honor. This is prestige. This is esteem. I get to be your disciple, Jesus? You that's doing all these miracles and all these amazing things? Heck yeah, I'm in. Count me in. Thomas believed. He was all in. He was committed. He gave up his business. He gave up his family. He gave up everything to follow Jesus. And for three years, he walked with him. They did life together. He watched the miracles. He was part of it. He got to participate in some of those things. He was learning it. And he hears from Jesus that Jesus is the Messiah, the Messiah that all the Jews have been praying for, that all the, the Jews are waiting for to come and establish his kingdom and save his people. Wow! And then comes the day that Jesus is betrayed and he's arrested and he's taken to the cross and he's killed before their very eyes. Well, now what? I mean, Jesus, the, the Messiah... My rabbi, the guy that I'm modeling my life after, that, that I want to be like, that I, I want to be him. How can you be the Messiah if you're dead? How can you save your people if you're dead? And Thomas knows that Jesus proclaimed that he would come back, that he would be raised a new life, but, I mean, resurrection from the dead, come on. Really? That's hard to swallow. Even though he's walked with Jesus and seen it happen... I can only imagine that it's still hard to grasp and still hard to understand and still hard to believe. What's this mean for Thomas? I'm just speculating at this point because Scripture doesn't tell us this, but I look at Thomas and I kind of wonder, did he maybe take it harder than the other disciples? Thomas appears to be one of those guys that he was all or nothing. He was either all in or not at all. And so he's committed everything to Jesus, walked with him for three years, and now he sees him die, and he's at a point where he goes, now what do I do? And it's interesting, because when you read the resurrection story, we're going to jump into that in just a second, you see that all the other disciples gather, but Thomas isn't there. And in fact, the day that Jesus is raised from the dead, it says Jesus came to the other disciples, and he allowed them to see him, and he said, here I am, I'm the Messiah, I'm raised to new life. But Thomas wasn't around. And Thomas hears about it, and he's struggling to believe it. Pick up the story with me, John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. It says, That Sunday evening the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Okay, time out. Pause right there. What did we just read? 
They're behind locked doors because they're scared the Jewish leaders are going to hurt them. And all of a sudden, Jesus is standing there with them in the room. Doesn't say anything about it. He turned the key in the lock or opened the door or came in. He's just there. I don't know about you, but I'm a little freaked out at that point. And of course, what does Jesus first say as he spoke? He says, peace be with you. Peace to you at all times in every way. Relax. Rest. It's okay. And then it says he goes on and he shows them the wounds in his hands and his side. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. So Jesus reveals himself to them and they see evidence that he's been raised from the dead. But watch what happens as you keep going. It says one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, wasn't with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. And I don't know when they told him because it doesn't really tell us that. So I don't know if they had a casual conversation outside or what. But Thomas wasn't in the room in that moment. He didn't see this. So they tell him, we've seen the Lord, but he replies, and here's his famous statement, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound on his side. And here's how we know Thomas. Doubting Thomas, questioning, well, is it really real? Did he really raise from the dead? Is that possible? I haven't seen it, so I don't believe it. Y'all can tell me whatever you want to tell me, but I'm not believing it until I see it for myself. Try to see this from his perspective. He's dedicated his entire life to Christ. He's dedicated his life to Jesus, thinking and knowing and believing that he's the Messiah, right up to that point of Jesus' death on the cross where he begins to start questioning, how can I believe in a dead Messiah? See, if Jesus is dead, the story's over, and Thomas has wasted the last three years of his life. He's devastated. He's broken. Of course he has doubts. He saw Jesus die. Everything in his human brain is screaming, it's over. He's dead I've been duped. But see, I think Thomas saw this for what it really was, maybe even more than some of the other disciples. I think he knew and completely understood that if Jesus had really risen from the dead, then it was going to require his whole life. It was real. It was all or nothing. But if he was dead, it was all over. And he was completely hopeless devastated, broken. This was make or break for Thomas. There was no middle ground. Either I'm all in or I'm not in at all. There's no in-between. Watch how the story keeps going. Verse 26 says, eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, just like before, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Again, I've already experienced this once, and I'm still freaked out. We had the doors locked, and you showed up. How'd that happen? Peace be with you. Peace at all times, in every way, be with you. Rest. I'm here. And then he goes on. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Or the NIV puts it this way. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus shows up again, and what does he do? He immediately addresses Thomas' doubts. And I love it. He doesn't even wait for Thomas to ask a question. He doesn't wait for Thomas to come after him. He doesn't wait for Thomas to go, wait, I need to put my finger in that, that hole in your hand. I need to see it. He immediately offers it to him. Here are my hands. Here's the holes. Put your finger in it. Put your hand in my side. See that I'm real. See that I'm raised. He goes to Thomas. Come and see for yourself, Thomas. Let me show you that I've truly risen from the dead. This is real. 
And I think it's what Jesus does for all of us. When we take our doubts to him and we're willing to be honest and transparent about our questions and struggles, Jesus invites us to discover him in a new way. He allows us to walk a journey of discovery where he shows up and he helps us to shift our perspective and to gain new understanding of who he truly is and what that means in our lives. But it doesn't stop there. Because I think there's one last piece of this journey that we've got to walk on that's critical. And we see this in Thomas's life. We have our doubts. We have our struggles. We go to Jesus. We offer those things to him. We ask our questions. We present our doubts. He allows us to discover something new. He shows us the holes in his hands and the hole in his side. He makes it real. But then we have to make a choice. And that's where Thomas is sitting. He's, he's experienced this now. Jesus has shown up. He's seen the holes. He knows that it's him. He knows that he's raised But what does Jesus say to him? He says, stop doubting and believe. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And Thomas has to choose in that moment. Do I believe what I'm seeing? Do I believe what I'm experiencing? Am I all in? Or is this crazy and I'm walking away? And I think that's where we fall too. We're faced with that choice. What will we do with our discoveries? Will we continue to doubt Or will we believe? Will we continue to doubt? Or will we believe? And watch how Thomas responds. The simplest answer that we skip over and make light of. He says, my Lord and my God. Okay. But what does that mean? See, this has a lot more implication than we realize. Because what Thomas just said right here could get him killed. Thomas just said publicly in front of other Jews, this is God. Jesus, I see you are God. You are Emmanuel. You're God with us. You're walking God in flesh with me. I've been walking with you all this time, and I see you truly are the Messiah. The Jews could have taken him out and stoned him right then. This was blasphemous as far as they were concerned because In their religion, they had to have a priest. There has to be a a mediator between them. And Thomas goes, no more. I see you differently now. I see that you are God. I recognize it. I believe. I'm all in. I'm committed. His doubts have been erased. Nothing else matters. See, in Scripture, there's not a whole lot else that tells us anything about Thomas. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. That's the one encounter that we see, that we know, that we understand. But if you look at historical books and you look at tradition and even look at some of the archaeological facts that have been found, you begin to realize that Thomas went on to lead a huge evangelical crusade in the area of India and brought all kinds of people to faith because of what he did, of how he carried the gospel. And story has it, tradition and and some of the historical books claim that, that Thomas died in this way. He was faced by a group of non-believers, this radical group that came to him, and they basically said, either you can renounce your faith in Christ and you can live, or you can keep proclaiming Christ like you've been doing, and you're going to die today. And those historical books tell us that Thomas looked at them and said, I will never renounce my Jesus. Never. And they tied him to a tree and drove a stake through his heart. He was all in. He counted the cost. He knew how serious it was. 
when he made that statement, he knew that he had let go of his life at that point, and he said, you're more important than I am. He was all in. Thomas was willing to die for his belief in Christ. And I wonder for you and me, it's a simpler question. Are we willing to live for him? We don't face persecution like Thomas experienced. We don't have somebody threatening to kill us if we say we believe in God. That's a rarity in our world. It's a rarity here in the U.S., not around the world, but here in the U.S., that's a rarity. We don't face persecution that way. But are we willing to actually live for him? And so I would ask you this. What kind of believer are you? What kind of believer are you? Are you a casual believer? Where you say you believe in God, but nobody else could really tell if they looked because you don't allow anything to impact your life. You don't allow his teaching to change who you are. Are you a convenient believer where if it helps you, you're all in? But if it isn't helping you, I don't know that I want to pay that price. Oh, you mean I have to give when I come to church? No thanks. Oh, you mean I've got to plug in and work hard and, and, and you know, do something for somebody? I don't know that I want to be part of that. Or are you a committed believer who says, I'm all in. I've counted the cost. I know what I'm up against. I know the obstacles that I could face. I know the problems that I might have to look to God to help me overcome. And I'm committed. I'm in. I'm ready to die for me and live for him. I'm ready to give up my dreams and live for his. Band, you guys can go ahead and come forward. I'm going to try to keep it really simple this morning. There's a, a very simple truth that we all struggle with doubts. We all have questions from time to time. We go through experiences in life that, that make us step back and question, God, where are you in this moment? How are you working? What are you doing? How is this good? See, our perspective gets off really easy, and we think we have things figured out. We think we have life figured out, and we sometimes forget that God sees it differently than we do. And it's hard to trust in those moments. It's hard to, to stay committed and to believe. But I'm going to invite you this morning to do just like Thomas did and to take your doubts to God. Take your struggles to him. Be honest. Be transparent. Share those things. Tell him, I don't know what the answer is. I, I don't know how to deal with this. God, I don't even know how you're going to show up in my life in this moment, but I'm, I'm coming to you with my doubts and my struggles, and I'm asking you to show up. And then I'm going to challenge you after doing that that when God shows up and he allows you to discover him in a new way and he begins to show you things, number one, have your eyes open and pay attention because he'll do it. He'll allow you to discover him in a new way if you're paying attention. But then I'm going to challenge you to make that decision to be committed, to be all in, to give him everything and to trust him and to truly believe and to walk with him in that kind of belief that we see in Thomas where you've counted the cost and you're depending on him entirely. Surrendering your whole heart looks like surrendering your time, your talents and your abilities, your treasure. That's your money, your stuff, all the junk that we enjoy, that we think is so important. It means trusting him with everything, surrendering all of it, your dreams, your whole life. 
If you're ready to do that this morning, if you're ready to surrender those things to him, to bring your doubts to him, to choose to believe and to be committed, then there's a couple ways you can respond. Maybe you just need to come this morning and kneel in front of the stage and spend some time praying. I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know what your doubts are, what your struggles are, maybe what they've been. But maybe you just need to take some time just to be honest with God and share those things and pour your heart out. Give him an opportunity to meet you where you are. Because most of the time we stay in our doubts because we choose to stay in our doubts. And we don't give God the opportunity to speak to those things in our lives. Maybe you want to come to Next Steps back here and Tim and Joni and Rick and Amy, some others will be back there. I'm going to join them in a moment. Just let us talk with you, pray with you. Maybe we can give you some resources that will help you to start the journey. Maybe there's some things that we could give you that you can read or that you can explore on your own to discover what God may be trying to say to you in that. But you respond as God speaks to your heart. And one last thing I would say this morning, maybe for some of you, you sit here this morning and you hear all these things and, and you realize you've kind of been that casual believer. You say you believe in God, you come to church because you believe in God, but if you're being honest, you don't even know how to describe what it would look like to have a relationship with him. Because maybe you've never surrendered your heart to him in the first place. And so I would just invite you this morning to come exactly like you are. Express your doubts. Express your questions. And ask God to just show up in your life. Surrender your heart to him. And give him permission to walk with you and to lead your journey. If you're doing that, I would encourage you to come to Next Steps. Allow one of us to pray with you. Allow us to talk to you about what that means, what that looks like. But don't leave here this morning carrying your doubts. Don't leave here in the same struggle, asking the same questions, stuck in the same pattern over and over and over and over. Do something different this morning. You know that pattern of over and over? That's insanity. Doing the same thing over and over and over and trying to get different results doesn't happen. Do something different this morning so that you can see a different result. Stand with me, let's pray. And then as God leads and the band plays, you respond. God, thank you that you take us as we are, that you accept our doubts, that you accept our questions, that you're big enough to handle all of those things. Thank you that you allow us to come to you and to present those things and and that you still show up, just like you did for Thomas. You don't even wait for us to have to ask the question so many times. You just, you're right there willing to show us the holes in your hand and, and the hole in your side and, and to make it real for us. And sometimes, God, it's just simple as we don't pay attention to those things. Maybe you've been trying to reveal yourself to us for weeks or for months or even for years, but we haven't noticed because we're so blinded by our doubts that we don't really look to you. So God, this morning, I just ask that you show up, that you help us to discover you in a new way, that you help us to, to see a new perspective of you and to, to have new understanding of what it means to walk with you and have relationship with you. God, help us to have open hearts that you can speak to us this morning. Help us to be honest and transparent, present our, present our doubts to you. And I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage and the commitment to be all in, to trust you, to believe in you, to allow our faith to grow where we can say just like Thomas did, I'm all in, I've counted the cost, I'm giving everything to you and I'm trusting in your plan instead of my own. 
Lord, your will, not mine. Your dreams, not mine. May your spirit have free reign in this place. In your name we pray. Amen.